And Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that as Jesus says at the end of each one of these letters, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Help us to have open hearts, Lord, to what you want to say to us. Uh, Not take away more than you mean for each one of us and not less. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, before I forget too, there was a Bible, New International, fairly new, Zondervan, that was left here last week. If anybody went home and forgot that, that's up here. We're in Revelation 2 this morning. You can turn there if you want, towards the latter end of that chapter. Before we start there, most of you know, both Kathy and I grew up in large families. She had nine other siblings. I had ten other siblings. And you know, when we were kids growing up, we wouldn't have had it any other way. We had a good time. There were always somebody else around to to play with, and there was always someone else around to blame if you needed to. Sometimes, though, for instance, one time someone broke my parents' bed. Someone was jumping up and down on their bed, and they broke it. To this day, I'm not really sure who that was. And I never accepted responsibility for it. But, you know, if no one saw you in a big family, what was a parent to do? So you guys probably know this. It's just like being in a classroom at school. If the teacher doesn't know who did it, what happens? You all get it. That's right. You all get blame. And I never told my siblings, and this is not recorded, that they missed television for three months because of me. Anyway, but you know, this morning's passage is encouraging, it's uh, refreshing for me in this sense that when God looks down at your life and mine or at a church, we're looking at seven letters to seven different churches, he's not under that problem that a parent has of determining who did what, who's responsible for what. He knows and he makes distinctions. So we're going to look at the second half of the letter to Thyatira this morning. That's going to start in verse 24. And if you remember in the first half, he was again calling a church to repentance. And you remember there was this gal and she called herself a prophetess so that contrary to scripture, she could teach and lead the church astray. And in her particular case, it was in idolatry and immorality. And when Jesus named her, he calls her Jezebel, not because that was her real name, but because he associates her with the most wicked female we can think of in the scriptures, Jezebel. And so Jesus had in that first section told the church he'd called her to repent. She'd chosen not to. Her judgment was coming. But then he'd said, and the rest of you who've been following her, I'm giving you a heads up. I'm warning you ahead. If you don't repent... Judgment will come on you as it surely will on her. So that's the first half of the letter. In the second half of the letter, talking about God makes distinctions. Let's get into that at verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, Jezebel's teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. I place no other burden on you. So having confronted the church or that portion of the church who was following Jezebel, doing the wrong things, 
Jesus turns to the other half, because they all weren't doing that. They all weren't jumping on the bed when they weren't supposed to. He turns to the other half and he says, Guys, I have no burden to place on you. I have no burden to place on you. As we've gone through these letters, repentance has been a common theme. I mean, if you think back, Ephesus is called to repent because their love had grown cold. And Pergamum, we read about, they had started entertaining the thought or the teaching that led to the immorality in Thyatira. They were the ones saying, it's okay to think about it, I'll entertain the thought, maybe I just won't go that far. Jesus had called them to repentance. First half of this letter, Jezebel and those who followed her called to repentance. Mark's teaching last week, I started feeling like we were on a broken record. Teaching last week out of Colossians 3, same thing, a call to repentance about putting off the old deeds and putting on the new. And so we've heard a lot about repentance. A lot about repentance. But Jesus, it's just as if he's been correcting Johnny in this corner and he turns to Susie who hasn't been disobeying with Johnny and he says, dear, you're okay with me. I have no burden to load you with. You're doing okay. I've got no gripe with you. Don't worry about it. You know, some of us have sensitive consciences. Some of us don't. Some of us do. And if you have a sensitive conscience, you're often asking yourself, well, gosh, is that for me? And Lord, is this what you're talking to me about? It's good to ask the Lord, Lord, is that for me? You know, each one of these letters says, he who has an ear to hear. We should be open to hearing what God has to say. But to this group in Thyatira, he's saying, guys, you're okay. You're not participating in that. And you're walking well, and I don't have anything else to to trouble you about. No burden. Nothing to call you to repentance on. This isn't saying, I think as you know well, that they were without sin, that they'd somehow reached perfection on earth. You know, the truth is, read James, read 1 John, all of us as human beings saved, Christians on the earth, we sin. We sin every day. But this is the thought that there wasn't some practice in their life. They weren't pursuing some known evil that Jesus had to call them to account for. So he says, guys, you're doing fine. It's okay. You're okay with me. You know, if you tell your kids that you discipline them because you love them, they sometimes find that hard to take, especially if it's after their rear side is warm or they've missed out on some favorite thing, whatever. You know, but really the truth is, biblically, Jesus says, I reprove you or I correct you because I love you. And to the church at Laodicea, the last church he's going to write to, he says, those whom I love, I reprove. He doesn't reprove or discipline because he's vindictive or because he likes to. He does it because it's in our best interest. In Hebrews 12, it says, If you don't receive God's discipline, his training, sometimes corrective, it says it's because you don't belong to him. Because God is loving, and if he's your parent, if you've trusted in Christ, you can count on him to reprove you, to call you to repentance when you need to be, because he does that in love. But his goal, it's not that he delights in the discipline, because what he's really after is your heart and mine. He really, he's calling us to fellowship. That's the thing. So if we've got something going in our life that's hindering our fellowship, that's an issue he wants to deal with. That honors him, and it's in our best interest as well. But you know, if you're walking well, if you're doing right, if you're avoiding the wrong things and doing the right things, he's thrilled. 
And he's not like some nitpicking parent who's just trying to find fault. He's not a fault finder. He's merciful and he's gracious. So if you and I are doing well, you know what? And walking with him, he's pleased to say, hey, great job. In fact, you know, most of us, I think, have this hope that when we see Jesus face to face, when the works of our life are judged before him, as 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 say they will be, we want to hear him say, well done, good job, I'm pleased. That's what we, I think most of us want to hear. Well, he's free to say that to us here and now. When you're doing well, when you're keeping yourself from the wrong things and you're participating in those things Jesus has called you to, he says, I have no other burden for you. You guys are walking well. Good job. He's not looking just to find fault. So, when you hear these messages on repentance, whatever the issue is, if you hear the call to repentance and it applies to you, then rejoice because God is lovingly confronting you about an issue, rejoice and repent. And then start walking with him again, fellowshipping with him again. If you hear these passages that call to repentance, and it's an issue that is not an issue in your life, it's an area that's not an issue for you, then rejoice and keep walking with the Lord. Don't take on someone else's burden on one hand, but don't fail to repent when you need to on the other. Jesus makes distinctions. So he knew I jumped on the bed, and he knew my siblings didn't. When he addresses you and I or one church to another, he knows who needs repentance, and he knows who doesn't need to related to anything. So if you need to repent when he's talking about an issue, rejoice and repent. And if that issue doesn't apply to you, rejoice and Keep fellowshipping with him. Keep going. As we're going to see, that becomes a big issue here. It's interesting that oftentimes you or I will go to church or we'll hear someone teach on the radio, and you and our first thought will be, Al needed to hear that teaching. Al needs to (laughs) repent in that area of his life. Or, man, I wish John had been at church this morning because that's what he needs to hear. But, you know, the truth is, the truth is God has left his spirit in the world And not just for the world, but for Christians, for those who belong to him. Conviction is one of the things the Holy Spirit does. That's his job. It's one of the things the third person of the Trinity does. He gives conviction. So if John or Al or Mike or Eric or any of us, if we need conviction, and if we're a Christian especially, which is the context we're talking about in here, we have the Holy Spirit to give conviction. Typically he does that as you spend time in the scriptures, as you come face to face with some truth that's at odds with your life, he convicts you. That's an issue. I'm not loving my wife the way I should be. I'm not honoring my parents the way I should be. Whatever. I mean, it could be a million and one things. Or as you hear someone teach on the radio or Sunday morning, God's word, God's spirit taking his word and convicting us. Sometimes we hear conviction from another Christian. Mike, you're blowing it. I need to tell you about this area in your life. Maybe you haven't thought about. But the point is, God is able to convict us. That's his job. He's good at it. He typically uses the word personally as someone teaches it or he uses another Christian to talk to us and he gives conviction. So if you or I need conviction in any area of our life, he's perfectly capable of doing that. 
again, related to each message, he says, he who has ears. We don't want to harden ourselves. You know, it is possible God's calling any one of us to conviction and repentance on any given thing. And if we say, thanks, Lord, but maybe tomorrow, thanks, Lord, maybe tomorrow, etc., we dull ourselves to that convicting work of the Spirit. That's not a good idea. You know, you dull yourself long enough, uh, you just you end up so far down the line um, that you start reaping things that God's going to allow you to reap just as the natural consequence of a failure to turn around. But God's able to give conviction. So if you and I just come to the Lord when you hear those messages this morning or any other time, Lord, is there something there for me? In fact, I think, you know, when I pray before I teach, oftentimes my thought is, Lord, help each one of us come away just with what we need to hear. Because each one of us comes in with different needs. We're at different places in life, different situations. I don't know everything that's going on in your life, and you don't know all the things in mine, but God does. And so he might be saying something to one person that he's not saying at all to another person through that same passage of Scripture. So we just want to say, Lord, what are you saying to me? It's an interesting thing when Samuel, little tyke, uh, back in the book of 1 Samuel, goes to work with Eli at the tabernacle, God calls him. And he wakes up in the night and he thinks it's Eli because he doesn't recognize God's voice. This happens three times. The fourth time, Eli has told him, son, this is God talking to you. So the next time you say, Lord, speak, your servant's listening. Sometimes God has to repeat it to us and that's okay. He's capable. And sometimes it may take someone else coming up and saying something to you. But if God wants us to be convicted, he's perfectly able to do so. So if we're walking along, we're following the Lord, and we're saying, Lord, we want to honor you, if God's not convicting you of sin, let's listen to the next verse and see what he says to us. If we're in that camp. He says in verse 25, nevertheless, in other words, no burden to put on you. You're walking well, you're doing great. Nevertheless, what you have... Hold fast until I come. Don't worry about what I said to the other guys at church there. It doesn't apply to you. But what you have, hold fast until I come. The Greek term here for hold fast has the sense of strength. And sometimes it's used in the sense of ruling. In other words, it's hold on tight or it's rule over yourself in a a way that you will not give up or quit early. He says... What you have, hold fast, use your strength. This is a purpose of will. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. When I was in high school, I ran high hurdles, and I'd run them for four years, you know, three years by my senior year, and I knew I was one of the best hurdlers in the state. And so my senior year starts, and one of the first races is at Highland Park High School. Yeah. (laughs) And I knew the competition, and I knew I could win with anyone there. So I start the race well, and I'm running well, and I take an early lead, and I'm ahead in the race. And it's just great. I'm having a good time. But you know what happens. I clear the last hurdle, and I'm so full of myself, and I know I'm so far ahead, and I'm doing well. What do I do? I'm going to just jog across the finish line because I'm cool. And, of course, Rick Brading, my hard-working friend, he didn't know the race was over because Mike thought it was. He didn't quit running at the end of the last hurdle. He ran hard through the finish line. Of course, he won. And I lost to my chagrin. 
And you know, that lesson has stuck with me ever since. In whatever I'm doing, I want to finish well. I don't want to give up early. I don't want to quit the race. There have been hard times in my life in the past in which I knew God was calling me to account to a finish line, to a very specific end, to push something as far as I could or to complete something as long as I needed to, etc. But that it was important to not quit early. That the finish line is the finish line. It's not the last hurdle. That it ain't over till it's over. To finish strong through the end of the race. And that's what Jesus is telling them here. He's saying, you guys, no complaint with you. You're running well. Just this one thing, don't stop. Hold on, rule yourselves until the end. Now, he says, until I come. You know, we're all going to see the Lord face to face. Most Christians, all Christians that read this original letter, they died a long time ago. Their finish line was death. They saw the Lord. Maybe for you and I, maybe in this generation, the finish line is going to be His coming. When He comes in the air and calls the church out of the world to be with Him forever. But as long as we're on planet Earth, and even when we're doing well, He says, you're doing well, but don't quit early. Hold fast, keep ruling yourself until the finish line, whether that's death or the rapture. Don't stop early. Hold fast what you're doing until the very end. He says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my work or my deeds until the end finishes the race. To him I will give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. He who overcomes, you remember every letter says this to the one who overcomes, and we've said, what overcomes the world, what, what makes us, any of us as Christians, overcomers, is faith in Christ. It's not personal assets. It's not that we're great people, greater than anyone else. It's faith. <clears throat> he says, to the one who overcomes and finishes the race, I'm going to give authority over the nations. I'm going to give you this <clears throat> iron scepter or iron rod to rule the nations. This sounds pretty impressive, um, and it should. This is no small thing. You know, Jesus says that there's going to come a future day when he doesn't just call the church out of the world, but when he comes again to rule and reign. Psalm 2 is the first use of this occasion where this rod, this iron scepter is used. And there it says God's Messiah says those on the earth, they're saying, we're going to throw God's chains off of us. And it says God in heaven laughs. Because his Messiah, when he comes to the earth, he comes with an iron scepter, an iron rod. Now, you know, most kings have a golden scepter because gold represents wealth and value. This is an iron one. It's not that Jesus lacks any of those golden qualities, but iron is the harder metal. Iron smashes the other things. In fact, in Daniel's visions, the worst monsters, the nations that are monsters, are pictured with iron teeth because iron is so potentially destructive because of its hard quality. On well, Psalm 2, it says Messiah, God's Messiah comes. He has an iron rod. He has an iron scepter. He will put down all rebellion. No one will be able to withstand his rule. So here Jesus says to you guys who have trusted me, and you're finishing the race, I'm going to give you to rule 
with me. You're going to rule the nations with me. To the last church he writes to, which we'll look at later, but to Laodicea, he says to you who overcome in that church, you're going to come and you're going to sit on my throne. Now here's the king of heaven and earth, and he says to little pipsqueaks like you and me, you just do right, you finish the race, and when it's over, you're going to hold my scepter of power and authority over the nations in your hand. You're going to rule with me, and you're going to sit on my throne with me. You're going to share my rule. This is mind-blowing. You know, a couple passages in Romans and one of the Corinthian letters, I forget which now, Paul says the glories that are coming to us, they're so overwhelming that they can't be compared to anything we know or suffer or experience on earth. It it boggles the mind. In fact, he says in another place that we can't even conceive what God has planned ahead. But this tells us a little bit that Jesus says, you're going to share my rule, you're going to share my throne. Now, it gets better than that. Closing this section out at verse 28, he says, And you'll rule with me with a rod of iron when I rule as the powerful Messiah. But he says, And I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Now, this is a lovely uh, image, but what does it mean? I'll give him the morning star. If there's any question about what Jesus refers to here, Revelation 22:16 answers. Jesus says in that verse, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. Morning Star was one of the names we had considered as a church before we settled on Lion and Lamb because of this passage. I am the bright morning star. So Jesus says to this group, I'm going to give you to rule and reign with me, but bigger and better than that, I'm going to give you myself. Myself. Let me review a couple other passages that use the same theme. In Malachi 4.2, Malachi was talking about the coming day of the Lord. It was going to be a day of judgment. It was going to be a terrible day. He compares it to an oven in which God's judgment would be an oven that would burn up. It would consume everything that opposed God. But Malachi says at Malachi 4.2, he says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, the S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. For those folks alive on planet Earth, when the Messiah came in power, Malachi says it's going to be like a sun rising in the east, and everything it puts its beams on or its light, it brings healing to. It doesn't burn them up like that oven of judgment. It brings healing with it. Or in Luke 1, 78 and 79, when Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, he has this great prophetic utterance, He compares the coming of the Messiah, he says, which the sunrise, S-U-N, the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, that the Messiah's coming would be pictured as the sun rising in the east. And then in 2 Peter 1, Peter's telling these guys about this occasion when he and his buddies up on the Mount of Transfiguration saw Jesus transformed before them. And he lost the veil that covered his divine nature and they saw him shining in front of them. And Peter said that the 
Old Testament prophets had talked about Messiah's coming. And he says these sure words of Scripture were like a light in a dark place. So Peter says the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures that talked about the Messiah, they were like a lamp, this glowing small area of light in this great big dark world. Great big dark world with a bright spot in it, God's Word. But in contrast to that, at verse 19 he says, Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. God's Word has been a lamp for you, but it gets better. Because God himself is going to rise in the future. And it won't be a lamp in a dark place. God's rising will be like the sun rising in the east in which it removes all darkness from in front of it. And that Messiah's coming, Jesus' second coming to the earth, is pictured here as the sun rising in the east in contrast to this lamp in a dark place. Total contrast. You know, as much as we value the scriptures, and we should, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the Bible's author. And when Jesus comes, we've had a light in a dark place now, but when he personally comes, the difference is the difference between the sun rising in the east and me holding a flashlight in the dark. His presence is going to banish all darkness from in front of it. So when he's telling these guys, the overcomers, the ones who finish through, they trust themselves to me, they get to rule with me, and they get me. And I'm this glorious one who's going to come at this time in the future and all darkness will be banished in front of me. I'm the one who brings all glory and honor with me. And he says, you don't just get the rule, but you get me as well. You know, think back to uh, Genesis, the first three chapters for just a minute. When God creates Adam and Eve in the garden, he says of everything he does, it's good. Everything he does, it's good. The one thing he says isn't good is that there's no helper for Adam. So as God says, it was not good. He gets Eve. This, of course, is a two-edged sword, isn't it? Because, of course, Eve is deceived, eats the apple, Adam follows her, and they sin. The creatures sin. They do the one thing God tells them not to. So now their fellowship with God is broken. They were walking with him in the garden. They were talking to him. Not anymore. Sin brought in death. They're banished from the garden. The creatures are put out of the place of fellowship with God. What's God do? The high king of heaven sends his princely son down to earth to take care of the sin of the creatures, to cover the sin of the creatures, and to redeem them. Only the redemption is qualitatively better than what we had before. You see, before, God walked with his creatures. He's the creator, we're the creatures. In redemption, Jesus invites us to be his bride. There's a huge difference here. I like my neighbors, but they're my neighbors. My family members are different, qualitatively different. Jesus comes down as the second Adam and he pays for our sin and he invites us, just like Eve was to Adam, to be his helpmeet throughout eternity. 
It's better than it ever would have been in the garden. And he says, guys, I'm not just going to give you my kingdom and my rule. I'm going to give you myself. And you know, all the marriages on earth, this is one reason why the enemy, why Satan is so averse to godly, healthy marriages. Ephesians 5 makes it quite clear. Marriages are supposed to be an earthly reflection of God's love for us. Jesus, the head of the church, you and I, his bride, the husband laying his life down for his wife, the wife loving and supporting her husband. That is supposed to be a picture on earth of Christ and his love for his bride, for his church, for you and I. So Jesus reminds them here at the end, guys, you know what? You're going to get all the kingdoms. They're all yours. But better than that, I'm giving you myself. You're going to be my wife, my bride. This sounds a little grating to men. But that's the thought. It's this intimacy we're called to with Christ himself, closer than we ever could have been before. In closing, think of this. If you're a young maiden and you're engaged to the son of the high king, You've known him forever, grown up together, let's say. And the day of your wedding comes. And as you go to the cathedral, all the nations are reflected there that the high king rules over. And there's all the pomp and there's all the honor and the majesty and the power that's represented there. And you walk up the aisle and there's the throne of the king and there's the golden scepter. And you stand there getting ready to be married. And you know all the world lies at your feet. And there's no groom. What do you think? The kingdoms are there. There's the throne. There's the scepter. It'd be a little empty, wouldn't it? <clears throat> Jesus is what makes any of this real. He's what makes it worth having. He's offering himself everything he is and everything he has to you and I. So he's saying, be faithful, finish strong, keep walking with me. You're going to rule and reign with me in the future. And I'm going to give you myself. Let's pray. Lord, we know in our minds that your word says that even though there are some descriptions of eternity and glory to come, that our minds simply at this point cannot take them in. In fact, I think of Paul having visited heaven itself, saw things that could not be described and which he was not allowed to write down. Lord, I don't know what all of eternity looks like in the future, but I know who we're going to spend it with. And Father, Lord Jesus, we ask, give us sensitive hearts and ears. When you're reproving us, help us to repent and leave behind hurtful things. And Lord, when we're walking well, help us not to have a guilty conscience. Help us just to keep walking well. Thank you for the day when the sun rises. Lord, thanks for the day when it's not a light in a dark place, but it's the sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. And Lord, wonder of wonders, thanks for the day when you embrace us fully as your own, when the marriage supper of the Lamb comes and when your bride is ready. And Lord, we just say with Paul and with John to that day and that event and our reunion, Come, Lord Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.